Bogner, was written by Jean Fairburn and is narrated by me, Sue Rodwell-Smith. Remember those old times, seaside holidays? Well, this is one of them. Do enjoy. When I was a child, a trip to the sea was meant as a treat for my sisters and me, but crammed in the back of a rusty Ford, feeling sick and awfully bored. Exhaust fumes made us cough and choke, cigarette smoke made us wheeze and croak, and not allowed to wind the windows down in case mum's hairdo set in town got blown around. The car's clapped-out engine ran hot as a furnace, but made it to Bogner's grey slug-coloured sea where razor-edged pebbles shone bright like new metal, cut bare feet to ribbons, thank heavens for Dettel. We ran to the sea to brave toe-tingling tremors from skyscraper waves blocking all our endeavours, to swim, so bobbed up and down like three corks in scum water while Nan picked our clothes up and acted as porter. Chain-smoking menthol tips from her pack of twenty, relaxing in a deck chair, always alert as a sentry. Thinner than stick men in a biting east wind, blue blotchy cold with goose-pumpy skin. Sea wet and shivery we walked up squeaky shingle, to be met by Nan, who kept warm by wearing Pringle. Who dried us briskly with bright brillo pad towels, which sea-salty stiff smelled fishily foul, and thawed out, wrapped up warm and cosy like human parcels, heads nodding, feeling dozy gritty and itchy in sand-damp and scratchy seaside clothes. Hag-toothed breakwaters in slime-blackened wood supported balloons of bulbous bladder-rack hoods. Sashes of seaweed formed green, tentacled drapes which, like curtains, sheltered Dad, who, hidden, waited out of the wind while his kettle boiled on a primer stove. So old, we girls thought it was certain to explode and blow our happy family into parts of bodies and bits like the human confetti following a nighttime bombing blitz. But Dad contained the conflagration in expectation of eating Nan's homemade picnic treats, currant rock cakes, gooey flapjacks and her special meat treat, American-style sandwiches of polished pink luncheon meat. One day out we heard Mum shout and saw her with an awful pout. So Dad jumped up and raised his mug and proposed a toast so he could boast to my wife, who is my life, and of course, my beloved Queen. But she just said, oh, go away, and almost sport our special day. Refused to eat Nan's shop-born sweets and hated how the sun would beat on her alone with migraine heat. Despite Mum's moans, we girls had fun. Nan bought us pop and sticky buns on the journey home and grown-ups beer, but drank too fast and felt awfully queer. Holiday, Romance and Life's a Zoo and both poems were written and is narrated by Tina Yates. Do enjoy. My darling, I'll love you forever, he cried with his hands up my shirt. My love, I'll always adore you, he sighed as he lifted my skirt. We romped and we rolled in the heather. I was dazed by the blue of the sky. Passion blazed in the holiday weather, though my heart somehow knew that he lied. It was fun while it lasted. I knew that for us too no future was there. 
But oh, the delights of that heather mat, when my soul and my skin were both bare. Life's a zoo. A bird in the hand is worth two in the bush, but the two in the bush sing the loudest. Cage a wild animal, there for all to see, but look in or looking out, who is proudest? Let them free to roam, those proud beasts of the wild. If they hide, who blames them? For why should they trust? As you toil in your cage, a human, a child, wonder why we're locked up. Who says that we must? Absolutely charming, Tina. Thank you very much indeed. The tale you're about to hear is called Annie, born 1890, written by Jean Fairburn and narrated by me, Sue Rodwell-Smith. Annie woke up with a start. She knew that the day would test her stamina, her patience and the buoyancy of her shrinking post office savings account. There again, she made this effort only once a year because she had no remaining relatives to make it for. Annie dozed in her most comfortable armchair, facing the front window of her small bungalow nestling under the South Downs. Her stomach rumbled with hunger as she surveyed the splendid high tea spread out on her lace tablecloth cad dining room table, which was kept fresh beneath an armoury of upturned plates. In this way, Annie's cucumber slices remained moist on their thin cut bread. A Victoria sponge cake's cream and jam filling was saved from going off in the heat. Ditto the butter on the cheese scones, there were gooey flapjacks for the girls and finally shop-bought meringue nests which Annie would fill at the last minute with tinned peaches, her favourite, always kept fresh under its armour of protective china. Annie's sister Hilda was a widow, she a spinster. Hilda had one daughter, Alma, and a husband, Alec, a lovely, softly spoken Scotsman who was much put upon. Finally, there were her three great nieces, none of whom looked as if they ever got enough to eat. They were all that remained of her blood relatives, and each August they squashed themselves into a large American-style Ford to make the trip from Surrey to Sussex. It was a car that Annie knew Alex couldn't possibly afford, but that Alma had insisted he buy. Annie's and Hilda's mother died in 1898, when Annie had been eight years old and Hilda six. Annie had been the pretty one. Her good looks were still there to see, but she and Hilda had not been born into a family where good looks matters, and, as the eldest, Annie was destined to be a servant, a maid of all work in a gloomy house in the best part of Brighton. It had been a position her stepmother's brother, Uncle Ernest, had secured for her when at the age of 14. Her life of drudgery began and was to remain. Annie was certain that Uncle Ernest had got her out of the way so that his sister, Eliza, could get closer to her father and sure enough, they were married a mere three months after Annie had left home. Annie had been a naive country girl on her arrival in Brighton. She had acted as a mother to Hilda and a housekeeper for her father between the ages of eight and 14 and was ripe for picking when she fell for the charms of a cheeky under-butler by the name of Charlie. Her father also a Charles. But Charlie had been caught with a small haul of silver that he tried to pass off as his own at a Brighton's pawnbroker's. He'd been arrested and somehow managed to implicate Annie as an accomplice to lessen his own culpability. Annie had protested her innocence, but no one wanted to believe her. No one took her side. The mistress of the house had noticed, she informed the detective conducting the inquiry, that her new servant appeared to like nice things. 
Her hated stepmother, Eliza, added weight to Annie's certain guilt by agreeing that. Yes, she too had noticed the particular feigning in her stepdaughter that she was fond of fripperies. She had been lucky, everyone concluded, not to have followed the disgraced Charlie to prison. Rather, Annie had been dismissed without references under a cloud, her future prospects in tatters. Worse still, her stepmother had taken a riding crop to her on her brief return home, and her father had stood back and let her do it. Annie was found a position as a living servant at the vicarage in Hassocks, where she spent the rest of her working life. Everyone who knew about her dismissal from Brighton said how lucky she'd been to have been taken on. What none of the family knew, not even Hilda, who when their stepmother was alive had been forbidden contact with her, was at the vicarage she has given birth to a baby boy, who had immediately been whisked away and adopted. Annie had never found out where he had been adopted to, and her heart had ached with the loss of her boy ever since. Her eyes filled with suppressed tears of emotion, although she pulled herself together quickly as outside Annie could see her visitors. They had just arrived. How handsome young Alex was. She wondered if her own son was similarly handsome. She dreamt he was. He would fix her gate and open the front door to welcome him inside with the rest of the family. Hello, auntie, said Alex jauntily in his soft Scottish accent. Being a smile at her, Annie being back. Her heart had melted. The tale you're about to hear is called A Glimpses of the Past, was written and is narrated by Helen O'Mahony. Enjoy. Since I was a little girl, I have always felt homesick, homesick for another life. It was as though I really belonged elsewhere. People commented that I seemed wise beyond my young years, and some said that I was an old soul. This intrigued me and seemed to confirm the feeling I had. In my dreams, I saw the faces of people who seemed familiar and close to me, and the feeling of belonging was so overwhelming that I would wake with tears trickling down my face. When I was old enough, I decided to have past life regression with a wonderful lady called Elizabeth. She was the first person who really understood this longing in me. Many times she put me deeply under hypnosis and each time I found myself in a forest with a damp sweet smell of the fresh earth in my nostrils. In this life, I carried a basket filled with plants and herbs for which I foraged. In time, I knew that I was a healer using knowledge and skills learned from my parents and grandparents before me. I used my understanding of plants to make medicines to help friends, neighbours and passing strangers. My ancestors were well respected as healers and medicine people, and my purpose in life was to carry on their work. Sometimes I could see clearly the face of a child whose leg was wrapped in a poultice I had prepared or an elderly woman drinking the healing potion I had given her. Their love and gratitude warmed me. I did not expect payment. There was such a feeling of belonging and acceptance in our little community that it eclipsed anything I experienced in my real life. In the dimly lit hut where I treated my patients, there was always someone else by my side, 
someone who cared deeply for me and who was my protection and comfort. He called me Sarah and I knew his name to be Gabriel. His image was always just out of reach and when I woke I felt bereft. Elizabeth reassured me that I would one day see him clearly. I believed that he was the missing part of my soul and that I would not feel complete without him. My normal life was becoming gradually more unreal and my friends would comment that I was becoming distant and that I was becoming obsessive about getting back to my former existence. They felt that I was throwing away my current time on this earth. I appreciated their concern but I felt pulled so strongly to get back to Gabriel. Finally came the session with Elizabeth where Gabriel spoke to me in such a way that everything changed. He sat holding my hand so tenderly that I felt overwhelmed with his love. He had something important to tell me. For the first time I saw him clearly, fresh-faced, smiling gently and with the kindest blue eyes I had ever seen. I knew that he was my soulmate and that this was the person I had been searching for all my life. But he was telling me to leave, go back to my real life, that I had healing work to do and I was needed by many poor and desperate people. He told me to stop searching and that he would come and find me. When I woke I was both happy and also grieving for my life in the forest with Gabriel, but I knew it was time to stop. Now my life is filled with the needs of the sick and broken refugees that I am tending to as a doctor every day. I know that I am helping to make their lives bearable in this harsh landscape. I still yearn for that other life, but this one is real. I believe one day that Gabriel will find me. I sometimes look for him in the faces of strangers, but I have faith that our time will come and that one day I will look up and see those beautiful blue eyes gazing lovingly into mine. I have hope. The Cat, written by Isabel Cook and narrated and edited by Sue Rodwell-Smith. A cat is independent and relies on you. A cat is there to sit on your lap and they will comfort you when your family is blue. It washes and scratches, swishes its tail. Your heartstrings pull, they cannot fail. Trusting and loving, yet they always will roam. You cannot protect them away from home. They stray, are inquisitive, they go where they choose. It's with sadness that their life so often they lose. All we can do is hope and pray that their nine lives will last and that cars are more mindful of their speed and don't drive too fast. You saw I was stuck, unable to open the door. You held it for me so I could continue some more. Thank you. She moved up the table so I could sit at the end. She saw I was struggling, behaved like a friend. Thank you. You carried my drink as I wheeled to the table. You knew that I felt incredibly grateful. Thank you. A thoughtful word showing I'm pleased you care. A polite word announcing I'm glad you were there. He pushed my chair as my arms were too weak. He bent down next to me to hear me speak. Thank you. I was so tired I couldn't remember the word. You said it for me, my embarrassment spared. Thank you. 
She sat next to me when I needed a rest. She listened with interest before she left. Thank you. A word I hope I will never forget to say. A word I hope will brighten your day. Market Harborough to Foxton. Written and narrated by Felicity Radcliffe. In this poem, each verse forms a haiku. That's the Japanese form of poetry where the first line is five syllables, the second line seven, and the third line five syllables again. The poem's called Market Harbour to Foxton on a Bank Holiday, Grand Union Canal, Market Harbour Arm. Warehouses reborn. Containers spill with flowers. Boats throng the basin. As we leave, we gaze at the manicured gardens that line the canal. A mobot at work munches on the verdant grass, weaving back and forth. Hawthorn bushes hide identical deluxe homes on a bleak estate. Swallows swoop on high. Dragonflies pause on our roof, imbibing the heat. Mud-trodden pathways carved by thirsty ruminants seeking refreshment. An owl box on stilts shields its nocturnal owner from the zealous sun. Quaint brick-built bridges Crouched in puffs of greenery, span shallow water. A taxing swing bridge vexes the mind and body. Angry drivers hoot. Now the towpath teams, gung-ho cyclists and runners, disturb fishermen. Bank holiday lunch, cacophonous beer garden. Lester's out to play. The tale you're about to hear is called Road Trip, was written by Charlie Dean and is narrated by Julie Stark. Stop the car, I've changed my mind. Leroy put his foot down sharply and the smell of burning rubber mingled with his sweat. She saw the white of his knuckles as his hands gripped the steering wheel. It's too late now. We can't go back. Well, let me out and I'll walk. She rattled the door catch and swung her long, tanned legs out of the half-open door. You're crazy, Carl. Think about the money. The police could be on our tail right now. Get back in the car. They sat, staring at the road ahead and the Blue Ridge Mountains spanning the horizon. Carl's hand slipped inside her bag, and she felt the rough roll of banknotes, spongy in her fist. She twisted her wrist so he could see the time. It's only 7.30. They're probably still in bed. 
If we turn round now, we could put the money back into the drawer before they're even. Slow down. Just take some time to think. He drove the car along a few more miles, then suddenly veered off onto a dirt track leading to a hamlet. It was no more than a desolate arrangement of shacks piled along the roadside. Carl thought it looked abandoned, but no. A handwritten sign propped in a window read, "Drinks." The woman who opened the door could have been any age. Her skin pitted with ingrained roadside dust. Her greasy overall tied with a knotted rope. She poured Leroy a scotch, then shuffled over to the stove to fill the coffee pot. The walls inside the shack were no more than rough-hewn logs. The shelves on each side of the stove were piled with jars of dried provisions, beans, lentils, and preserves. The floor was bare boards, scattered with rag rugs. The air was thick with the smell of burnt grits. Carl sat on the edge of a hard chair, careful not to snag her tights, and began filing her nails. In her mind's eye, she saw her bedroom: pink gingham curtains and throw, the pedal-edged clock that Pop had carved for her, and the chest lined with childhood toys, a threadbare rabbit, picture books, and a doll that shut its eyes and wet itself. She had placed the letter on the mantel, and now imagined Ma opening it, crying, calling Pa. Of course. They had never liked Leroy, and he knew it. But given time, the woman went to throw the coffee dregs out the door. Well, Leroy swung round to face Carl. Well, what? Have you made up your mind? Carl twisted the ends of her hair, and avoided his gaze. I gotta go back. Things will work out. It's for the best. You promised. You said I changed my mind. It doesn't alter what I feel for you. But did it? She took a long, hard look at him. His stubbled skin and musky smell. His troubled eyes. He was handsome, yes, and when he pressed her close. Hard to resist, but he didn't like her friends or folks. Wanted to prize her from her shell. It was his idea to steal the cash. Leroy glowered at her. He could look real angry when he didn't get his way. She lifted her bag and stood up. I need to use the bathroom. The woman gestured toward the back of the shack. Outside in the yard, a single thorn bush grew, up against a shattered fence. A chill wind was blowing, and Carl wrapped her arms around herself, shivering as she walked across the stony ground to the far end of the yard. She could smell the lean-to as she approached, a mixture of skunk oil and stale egg. She pushed open the door, to reveal a hole in the ground. Flies buzzed round the smeared pit. How could people live like this, in what was meant to be the richest country in the world? 
She lifted the flap of her handbag and squirted her perfume spray into the air, then prepared to squat. When Carl got back to the shack, she could hear voices that stopped when she approached. The woman had poured her fresh coffee, which she sipped, looking at her watch. She noticed Leroy's glass had been refilled, and there were new logs on the fire. Carl leant back, feeling suddenly relaxed. She had woken early, before dawn, so they could make their getaway. Now, the wood smoke and the heavy ticking of a clock lulled her into a state somewhere between sleeping and wakefulness. She thought of Ma and Pa, imagining the relief on their faces when she returned. A stream of coffee dribbled from her lips, and she tried to lift her arm, which was hanging by her side as though weighted by lead. Her tongue felt swollen and twisted in her mouth. She tried to speak to Leroy, who had moved his chair and was sitting by her side, his hand resting on her arm. From beside the stove, the woman was watching her. Carl saw that Leroy's cheeks were flushed and his eyes bright. She felt a tight pain wrench her gut. She wanted water, but her mouth felt as though it was stuffed with candy floss. Her bag had fallen to the floor. The roll of notes spilled out at its side. The air was dense. It seemed as though the room had filled with smoke. Carl tried to scream, but no sound came. The light was fading, and suddenly went out. A siren wailed and passed the shack, deafening at first, then gradually fading. Leroy looked out of the door at the road, empty now, stretching out into the distance. Then he lit a cigarette. Let's clear up this mess. They worked together for a while. Then the woman handed him a spade. Leroy walked into the yard, relieved himself into the pit, and began to dig. Pushing her bangs back from her eyes, careful not to snag her pantyhose. She wanted water, but her mouth felt as though it was stuffed with cotton candy. Session was written by Isabel Cook and is narrated by Kevin Daly. The snow lay in a thin sprinkling of cover. The weather threatened more, but as yet none had fallen. In the hollow, Sunday lunch was being served when the doorbell rang. Martin Young had a gut feeling it would be for him, and he was right. He rose from the table. Ah. A vet's work is never done, he said. He left and followed the young girl out to his car, and they both drove off. Martin finished with the lame horse and was about to get into his car when he encountered a perfect vision. She came out of the farmhouse in a shabby floral pink dress, but to him she was a princess. Angela, go back into the house. I won't be long, Stephen the farmer called to her. 
She stood for a moment and locked eyes with Martin. He was helplessly in love from that moment on. Stephen smiled at Martin. Mrs. gets lonely if I'm away too long, Stephen explained. Martin roused himself. He was in love and in shock. How could such a vision be wedded to Stephen, who was at least 30 years her senior? Martin drove home, but his mind was not on the driving. His mind was on murder. The next day, he made an excuse to visit Hall Farm again. He even suggested Stephen come out to the local pub and have a drink together. Martin did not usually socialise with his clients, but Howard, the senior vet at the practice, welcomed a more friendly approach with the farmers. Martin did not see the vision again for some weeks, until one evening Martin and Howard, with a few of the locals, had a bit too much to drink. Martin climbed into his car and took Stephen home. There was no drink driving legislation in the 50s. Martin opened Hall Farm's door and dragged Stephen inside. He lay him out on the couch. He did not hear her enter, but he felt her presence. Her smell was sweet, and her dressing gown brushed past him, making him tremble. She spoke softly, and with a slight Cornish accent. To Martin, her voice was like music. She offered Martin a coffee, which he accepted. He took his time drinking for his cup, and they talked into the early morning. Angela was bright and easy to talk to, and they learned a lot about each other. Stephen stirred, and Martin stood and took his leave. He sat in his car, hands on the steering wheel, wondering how he could get rid of Stephen. At five o'clock, frozen and dying for a cup of tea, he drove home. The winter was a mild one, and spring sprung out of nowhere. The vets had been kept busy with the lambing. Martin did not see Stephen for weeks, but one day... As luck would have it, Stephen called at the vets for one of them to look at his prize bull. Martin agreed to go. No one knew exactly how it happened, but Hercules was blamed. Angela, having just found out she was expecting, fainted at the news of Stephen's death. An inquest took place, and no suspicion fell on Martin. He did not visit Angela in the days following Stephen's death, but slowly and skillfully he wooed her. And a year after Stephen had passed away, they announced their engagement. Martin, so it would seem, loved Angela and her beautiful baby boy. Many of the locals came to the wedding. Martin moved in and took over the running of the farm. Hercules won many rosettes over the years and fathered many calves. Martin and Angela remained childless, but Stephen's son was growing into a fine, sturdy lad. He was the spitting image of Stephen, a fact Martin resented. He was not particularly warm to the child, and as the child grew, Martin became hostile to him, and even on occasion was cruel. He hit young Harry more than once causing a nurse on a routine school inspection to become concerned. 
Harry was a boisterous boy, always up to mischief, and his bruising was put down to his boisterousness, although the nurse still had reservations. Angela herself was becoming more aware of Martin's behaviour. She confided in her friend Edna, whose brother she was also friendly with. Angela doted on young Harry and could not bear the thought of him deliberately being hurt, and so she began to spy on Martin. She obtained the evidence she needed and contacted the police. Martin was detained and questioned, and while he was away, Angela took Harry and left the farm to stay with her friend Edna in the next village. Martin returned home to find Angela gone. He flew into a rage that turned to despair as he was still obsessed with Angela. The place he looked was Edna's. He burst in, breaking down her door, and after searching every room, he realised she was not there. Edna had concealed Angela and Harry in her brother Edward's house two doors down the road. Martin was obsessed with finding Angela. He neglected his livestock and the farm was failing. He was still a part-time vet and was not keeping appointments as he should. One day, Martin realised Hercules was not well. He brought him in from the field into the barn. No one knew exactly how it happened, but Hercules was blamed and Martin's death was recorded exactly the same as Stephen's. Not long after Martin's death, Angela and Henry returned to the farm. Edward was a regular visitor and two years later they were married. The farm prospered for a while. A new Hercules was in the barn, young and eager to get amongst the females. One day, Angela happened to be in the barn when she caught sight of a man in the shadows. She thought him to be a gentleman of the road and asked him if he would like something to eat. There was no reply. Angela thought him either unable to talk or just rude. She, however, went to get him a sandwich from the house. When she returned, the man was not there. But, lying where he had been, was a blue and gold scarf, the same sort of scarf Martin wore. Angela was a little frightened by this, and Edward noticed the change occurring in her. Edward was a good and kind stepfather to Harry, and the two bonded well. They became concerned for Angela when she began to have accidents. The first was a fall down the stairs. Angela swore she'd been pushed but both Edward and Henry were out visiting a neighbour at the time and there was no one else at the farm. The second time she'd been in the car when she swerved and went off the road hitting a small stone bridge wall. Angela swore someone had control of the wheel. Edward and Harry began to be concerned over her mental state. Odd, unexplained things were happening in the house, also to the extent that Angela went to seek help from the local vicar. Angela was convinced that the farm was being haunted, and with help from the vicar, an exorcist was brought in. The exorcist walked from room to room, sometimes gasping, sometimes sighing. There's a lot of love in this house, she remarked, but then went on to say, but there is also much hate. 
She told Angela to be careful, as the hate she felt was directed at her. Edward thought it mumbo-jumbo and said as much, but was worried for Angela's state of mind and continuing mishaps. Angela, once easygoing, was withdrawn and silent. Her face, once blooming with beauty, was sallow, pinched and drawn. Edward called in the doctor. The doctor examined her, but could not find any physical ailment. It was suggested she see a psychologist. Angela kept her appointments, but she was slowly deteriorating. One day, she did not wake up. Martin had come for her. Angela died from an unknown cause, and her death was recorded as unexplained. Young Harry and Edward watched helplessly as the farm was struck by one disaster after another. Hercules the Younger became sick. He was saved, but he was not his old self. Edward replaced the stock, and they began to build up the farm once more. Harry ran in from the meadow one morning ashen. He told Edward he'd just seen his mother. She was begging him for help. Edward was shocked by Harry's encounter and asked Harry to show him where this had occurred. Harry reluctantly took Edward to the pond and told him. She was by the fallen tree. She spoke and begged me for help. It was as if she was looking at someone or something. She turned, let out a wail and was dragged backwards. And then she was gone. Harry told Edward. Edward's hairs rose on the back of his neck. Had Martin come for Angela? And more to the point, what could he do about it? Edward called in the exorcist and explained the situation. An exorcism was performed and everything it was hoped would go back to normal. Harry's birthday came and went. Harry and Edward were finding happiness once more and the farm was doing well. One evening, as they sat listening to the radio, an upstairs door banged. Edward thought a window had been left open, causing a draught. He went to check. No window had been left open. Edward went back downstairs, and as he sat down, they heard footsteps from above. They thought the dog had somehow got upstairs, although the dog never ventured there. They found the dog asleep in his basket and they were about to go upstairs to investigate when something brushed by them, followed by a wail and a breath of wind. Edward could see no one, but Harry, with his mouth open silently, mouthed, Mother! Angela, pale and looking terrified, left through the wall. Edward sat Harry down and made him a cup of tea. He knew this not to be Harry's imagination. Harry told Edward of Angela's distress, and they both wondered how they could help the stricken Angela. A few days later, Harry and Edward were with Hercules in the barn. They were expecting the exorcist. She duly arrived when suddenly two ghostly shapes of two men fighting became visible to the three of them. The two ghosts were at each other's throats, hitting, punching, kicking, and going seven bells at each other. Suddenly, Angela appeared. The 
two men stopped and looked at her. She had in her hand a piece of sharp wood and forcibly plunged it into one of the men's chests. The exorcist sprinkled some holy water over the prostrate ghost, chanting an incantation. The ghost moaned, and then covered in fine mist, it disappeared. Angela and the other ghost hugged each other, floated over to Harry, kissed his head, and they too vanished. The exorcist seemed genuinely amazed she had seen such an apparition. The three of them sat in the kitchen, wondering what had happened. Harry had a wide and blissfully happy expression about his countenance, and Edward was putting the pieces of the puzzle together. The two ghosts fighting, he assumed, were Martin and Stephen. Angela was running from Martin, who was still obsessed with her. Angela was terrified by Martin's passion, and having found her first true love, Stephen, had chosen him and not Martin to be with. It was hoped that the exorcist, with Angela's help, had got rid of Martin's ghost permanently. Harry was overjoyed to see his parents and meet the father he had never known. Angela and Stephen's ghosts were as much part of the farm as Harry and Edward. Harry often saw his parents walking hand in hand by the pond, and they would sometimes see him smile and wave. The farm prospered, and peace once more returned to Hall Farm.